This is it. The putt to win the tournament. If you sink it, the championship is yours. But on your backswing, your hat falls over your eyes. Is this how you're running your business? Poor visibility because you're still relying on spreadsheets and outdated finance software? To see the full picture, you need to upgrade to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system to power your growth. With visibility and control of your financials, inventory, HR, planning, budget, and more, NetSuite is everything you need to grow, all in one place. With NetSuite, you can automate your processes and close your books in no time while staying well ahead of your competition. 93% of surveyed businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Over 27,000 businesses already use NetSuite. And right now, through the end of the year, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind financing program to those ready to upgrade at NetSuite.com slash C-Suite. Head to NetSuite.com slash C-Suite for special end-of-year financing on the number one financial system for growing businesses. NetSuite.com slash C-Suite. Small Biz America. Welcome to Small Biz America. I'm David Wolf. Hope you had a great week in your business. This is where Small Business Talks, and we'll be talking to four very compelling guests for the hour. Master of Business Risk, Dr. Anthony Miles will be with us in just a few minutes. His latest book, Risk Factors and Business Models, Understanding the Five Forces of Entrepreneurial Risk and the Causes of Business Failure. That's coming up just in a few minutes. Author, international speaker, and educational systems consultant, Franklin Shargell will be with us. He has a very unique and proven approach to improving our educational system. Celebrated author and public speaking guru, Cam Barber. You don't want to miss him. And the small biz brain, of course, with Gabe Arnold, as uh, Gabe Arnold uh, joins us every week, as you know. This program is sponsored in part by Rembrandt Communications, content marketing and SEO strategists. You can visit them at rembrandtwrites.com forward slash Small Biz America. He's the best-selling author of Risk Factors and Business Models, Understanding the Five Forces of Entrepreneurial Risk. Dr. Anthony Miles, Ph.D., is an, he's an entrepreneur. He's the founder and CEO of Miles Development Industries Corporation, a consulting practice and venture capital acquisition firm. He's also an award-winning professor and researcher, radio talk show host, and executive producer of Game on Business Talk Radio Show. Let's find out more about his latest and the work he's doing. Dr. Miles, welcome. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it, David. Thank you so Absolutely. much. Absolutely. A fascinating subject matter. We talk about risk. You know, no, entrepreneurs don't naturally think about risk. What are some of the risk patterns that you see cause failure from your experience? Talk about that. Uh, basically, I outline in my book, there are basically five general risk factors, but I can give you some things directly that you know tend to influence business failure that also increase your chances of risk. You have personal characteristics, you have uh, intangible operations risk, you have enterprise operations, and then you have market climate, and you have business environment. You know, some of those things that cause, could cause failure is you know, poor management, uh, market saturation, um, inability to assess the level of competition, mm-hmm. uh, uh, barriers to entry to the marketplace, and also uh, if you're in a declining industry that's going through a paradigm shift. Industry that's, that's uh, 
right. If you have an industry that's uh, in a technology area and the technology is making a shift to a new technology and you're in an old one, that could be a big problem. So those are some of the things that you want to pay attention to in terms of failure. But those five characteristics are based on what I've done or what I've researched on the 500-plus businesses that I uh, did research on. I saw that. You have uh, some information, some data about all of this, and this is fascinating because entrepreneurs generally have what Michael Gerber would call the entrepreneurial seizure. They lunge into business or they've been in business for years and just may not be um, slicing and dicing their risk profile the way that you tend to think about it. So uh, Absolutely. briefly, if you can talk to us a little bit about the research and what it showed you. Well, what the research has showed me is that one of the most critical patterns that I've seen in terms of risk has been the entrepreneur's uh, inability to properly assess the marketplace. Mm -hmm. And because they didn't realize the terrain of the industry that they're entering, they didn't look like if it's regulated or you have trouble entering the marketplace because of uh, the legacy company that already established that already established. That has been the biggest problem that I've seen with my research is the market saturation of the uh, of the uh, industry. Interesting. So it's there's an industry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry to step on you, please. Sure. When you go into a, a new business, are you trying to start a new business? And a lot of this happens with entrepreneurs that I've seen that I've worked with. They do not properly assess the marketplace. And there's an allegory that uh, Warren Buffett's mentor, Philip Graham, used to tell him. This allegory called Mr. Market. And Mr. Market is an allegory that works like this. Mr. Market, when you go, and I'm using probably take a liberties with this, when you sure. go on to start a business. You need to go through Mr. Market. Mr. Market is going to let you know if that business is a viable venture and if it's viable to uh, go into business. And if Mr. Market says no, then you shouldn't do it. And Mr. Market doesn't lie to you. He tells you the truth. And he comes to you every day. When you are, you go to him every day, goes, should I go into this, uh, go into this industry? Mr. Market says, no, you're not ready yet. And most people won't listen to Mr. Market. So that's an interesting allegory that I use to talk to entrepreneurs, especially when I do my consulting work. That's what I tell them. Mr. What Market else do you, says you're not ready. Yeah, Mr. Listen to the market. This reminds me of some of the uh, emotional coaching that goes with trading stocks where you want to really just work your plan and you need to listen to the market. It's not lying. It's going to tell you supply and demand in a very pure sense. Let's move Absolutely. to prevention. So when you talk to entrepreneurs about preventing risk, where do you like to start with that? How do you lay that out for them? And some of this we've covered, right. I think. When I talk about entrepreneurs, when I deal with them in terms of risk, I say, okay, do you have any experience in the industry? That's part of the category personal characteristics. Uh, I would say maybe maybe almost 40% of the people, maybe over 40%, want to start businesses in the industry that they're not familiar with, mm -hmm. industry that they have no experience in. And uh, most entrepreneurs that – either frustrated or come from an industry where they already worked, that's a risk factor as well because if you work, say you're a cab driver and you want to start your own cab company and there's so many cab companies here, well, the likelihood of you being successful is probably not that great because there are already cab companies that are already established. So you're trying to reinvent the wheel. And it's very difficult for employees especially employees who go from being an employee to going into being an entrepreneur because they only know what they've uh, studied or what the occupation that they work from. 
So they're trying to reinvent the wheel because they, you know, maybe some industries you can get away with it, maybe construction, but mm-hmm. some industries you can't get away with, especially professional services. Just, you know, Michael Gerber, I agree with him on this. Just because you're a good employee, I mean, you'll be a good entrepreneur. That's right. That's a That's fascinating, right. fascinating book that he talked about that. And I see that, a lot of that. That's why personal characteristics is a big issue when I uh, work with entrepreneurs. I also ask them, uh, how educated are you in the industry? Okay. If you don't have any education in the industry, it's like a guy who works, who uh, I've had this happen to me. This is so funny. Had a guy that was, a, he was, I think he was in construction. And he was trying to do a food business. He had no experience in the industry. He had, he had never worked in the food businesses, but he's trying to go from one industry to another industry with no experience. Yeah. And that, he obviously crashed and burned. So one of the things, personal characteristics is a big issue when I work with entrepreneurs. You know, Absolutely. What's your experience background? How long have you been in the industry? Those are some things that they need to look at. Another thing that you talk about in your book is commodity-based businesses versus other business models. There's a particular kind of risk here. Right. When you talk about a commodity-based industry, that's the industry that the price is the most single most important factor in terms of competing in a marketplace. And because you're trying to compete on price and you're competing with the other people, all the other 100 people in the industry, you're not going to be very successful. Mm-hmm. A good uh, example of that is uh, someone that sells corn. Okay, you're selling corn and you have no you have no brand recognition. You're just selling corn. And most people, when they go to the store, they're not going to buy your corn. They're going to buy corn, period. So (laughs) if you have a commodity based type of business that has no identifiable brand to separate you from the competition, where you're basically a commodity based business and you're always going to be vulnerable to price price for uh, fluctuations. Yeah. If somebody raises their price, go ahead. No, sorry, please. No, if somebody raises their price, you got to raise yours. If somebody lowers their price, you got to lower yours. So that means that affects you. So because it's a commodity, it has no, it has nothing that make people want to run to buy corn from you. It's a common product. Yeah. And nobody goes to buy corn from you and say, I'll use myself, Miles Corn uh, <laughs> feed. Because what? Corn is corn. If I blindfolded you, you wouldn't be able to tell my corn from anybody else's corn. But trying to tell some of these uh, new entrepreneurs this is very, very difficult. I don't know if you ever heard this adage. All businesses are guilty until proven innocent. (laughs) That's beautiful. (laughs) If you just... If you're just joining us, we're visiting with Dr. Anthony Miles. He's the author of Risk Factors and Business Models, Understanding the Five Forces, Five Forces of Entrepreneurial Risk, a must-get through the website www.mdicorpventures.com, mdicorpventures.com. Uh, we got about a minute before our hard break here. Uh, Anthony, anything else that you want to talk about uh, in terms of the book, we know it's killer, and we know people need to read this so that they can hedge their bet as they move into business or as they begin to pivot the business they're in. Just real quick, if you could. Sure. Uh, I like to just say my book is a wake-up call, and I try to demystify the issue of risk. And my book should be next to you when you're starting a new business and you're doing a business plan. My book is a wake-up call, and I like to think that I'm the sober person. I'm not going to tell you all the nice things about entrepreneurship because entrepreneurship is hard. It's not yep. easy. 
Yep. Not it, for every Facebook, there are millions of companies that fail. Dr. And Anthony Miles. Best. Yep. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Sorry, we got a, we got a hard break coming up at the at 17 past the hour here, but uh, thank you so much. We'll do it again for sure. Up next, Franklin Chargell. Anthony, thanks for joining us on the program. BizTalkRadio.com. Small biz. Small biz America. His work has been recognized and celebrated by the U.S. Department of Education, Business Week, Fortune Magazine, National Public Radio, and the Public Broadcasting System and the New York Times. Franklin Chargell joins us on this segment. He's a former classroom teacher, school counselor, school administrator who successfully designed, developed, and helped implement a process that dramatically increased parental engagement, increased post-secondary school attendance, and significantly lowered a Title I high school's dropout rate. Franklin, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me on, David. Absolutely. Several points here to cover in just a short amount of time, but we'll do it. Local communities. Uh, this is interesting. You're contextualizing schools and communities, and you ask first, uh, what are the people that are moving into town? What do they ask? Well, the first question people who want to move into a community ask are, what are your schools like? Because you see schools are a reflection of the community. World-class schools produce world-class communities, and that's what we really need. You know, we talk about schools, but we forget that schools are, in fact, a form of business entity, if you will. Schools need to be globally competitive and just as competitive as businesses. So talk a little bit about how you how you like to frame this idea. Well, uh, Toyota is no longer simply a Japanese car company. Um, it's a global company. It's a globally competitive company, and they produce cars in the United States as well as other countries outside of Japan. I did a workshop for business people in Turkey, and I said to them, just as I can drink Turkish coffee here in Istanbul, you're drinking Coca-Cola, which is an American company. Mm-hmm. So we need schools to be as globally competitive as businesses are. The best graduates from Denver, Colorado, are not competing for jobs with the best graduates from Albuquerque, New Mexico, but the best graduates in the world. So companies will not move businesses into communities which are not, which where the schools are not performing well. So you have two sort of several facets to this. One is we think of schools as localized, but in fact they are globalized in a very real way. And that's one of the big points uh, that you're making there. Uh, and we should think of them as businesses. And I imagine when you consult with administrators or uh, school, uh, you know, the powers that be in whatever school system, you've got to frame it out as a business. And this competitive advantage is essential to su- their success. Um, you have said that education isn't expensive, but ignorance is. Elaborate, if you will. Sure. Um, the uh, U.S. Department of Justice says that 82% of all of the prisoners in jail are school dropouts. So wow. it isn't that schools are expensive, although as I travel around the United States and the rest of the world, I keep on hearing, well, schools take up so much of our uh, state and local budgets. Well, prisons take up even more. There is a cliche 
that one year in the state pen more than equals four years in Penn State. Wow. Uh, and the recidivism rate, the return of prisoners to jail, is 80% of all prisoners return to jail within four years. And the average cost of prison in the United States is $41,000. There isn't a school district in the country that funds its schools for $41,000. I mean, it's, it's such a striking and tragic set of data to talk about and think about. Um, so moving. And communities get it. I recently returned from speaking in Porto Alegre, Brazil, where I was mm -hmm. invited by the business community to talk about exactly this topic, and they are very concerned about the lack of an educated populace. Um, so, you know, we need, as an America, as Americans, to realize how we need to start treating our schools. And again, schools, depending on the community, take up a large percentage of the working population, and you're correct. They are businesses. They're buying a lot of goods. They're, they're, uh, they're, the transportation services that schools supply, yeah. the purchases of computers, they are a big purchaser of goods and services in every community that they are. And they're producing knowledge capital as in the form of human beings that graduate, that go out into the workforce. And this uh, brings us to relevancy. You know, the, the, the industrial age is over, I believe, and I don't know that you do, and I think we've talked about this offline. Isn't it true that our schools have, were really designed from the industrial age sort of platform? Yes, and David, you can remember, as I do, that when we were in middle and high school, we moved from social studies to science to math, just as automobile production uh, was on, you know, on the on the line. Uh, they moved from fenders to bumpers to, well, that cannot work because there aren't schools that are dealing with 21st century learning. We need to have students who graduate with the skills that they need for the 21st century. They need yeah. to learn how to work on teams. Most schools, mm -hmm. there's an isolation of students as well as teachers. They need to be problem-solving, problem-solvers. And, and part of the difficulty is that the current high-stakes testing doesn't ask students to solve problems. So. We need to, as, as you've indicated, uh, we're dealing increasingly with what I call non-traditional learners. Um, they, they are you know, coming out of non-traditional families. They learn in non-traditional ways. Give a two-year-old child a cell phone. Give a child a cell phone or, or a tablet. Yeah. A two-year-old child knows how to use that. There's an intuitive learning right. that schools are really not taking advantage of. No, they're really just uh, sort of uh, um, promoting and, 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 and uh, um, distributing curriculum, uh, having the students regurgitated, and this idea about critical thinking and engaging with teams and problem solving, which happens in business, is not happening in the school systems. And finally, the, the 911 factor, as you call it, schools have become the emergency room uh, of society. Uh, so uh, talk to us a little bit about this. we got about a minute, 20. 
Okay, and, and part of the difficulty was uh, we used to have institutions which handled problems. We used to give uh, families more of the situations to deal with, but that has changed. We now have the single family, single parent family is a norm. So that so that yeah. the problems yeah. that church and families used to solve are now being given to the schools. Uh, if you want to teach children not to have sex, it's it's a school problem. If you want to have children uh, teach children not to use drugs, it becomes a school problem. The educating educational community hasn't been trained, nor does it have the time to deal with all of the problems that are be- now being dumped into them. Interesting. We're cramming these problems into the schools when they're really fundamental to society and families and the structure of families. And the work you're doing is amazing. www.shargel.com. That's S-C-H-A-R-G-E-L.com. You can find out. Uh, Franklin is the author of several best-selling books, and you can find out about uh, what he's doing and what he's writing about there at Shargel.com. Franklin, thanks for joining us on the program. It's time for another PR and SEO quick tip with Melanie Rembrandt. So, Melanie, I'm a small business owner. How do I learn to do my own public relations? Well, David, when you break it down, it's pretty simple. Public relations is just telling an interesting story to someone who cares about what you have to say. So with this in mind, you can learn to do your own publicity, and I break it down into just three steps. Well, the first step is to conduct research. Figure out what your target market watches on television, reads, listens to on the radio, and looks at online. And then the second step is to create a story idea about your business that each of those particular media venues will be interested in hearing. Maybe you can relate your products and services to a current news event, trend, holiday, or other current activity. And then you figure out what you're going to say and practice giving your pitch. Now, the third step, all you do is contact the appropriate media members and pitch them your story idea. And that's it. Over time, you'll perfect your skills and be a PR pro. Want to boost sales fast with public relations and search engine optimization? Listen to PR and SEO quick tips with Melanie Rembrandt and visit rembrandtwrites.com forward slash radio for your free newsletter, exclusive tips, and more. Small Biz. Small Biz America. When it comes to delivering effective messaging when public speaking, our guest on this segment really, really understands the game. Cam Barber joins us on this segment. His new book is What's Your Message? Public Speaking with Twice the Impact Using Half the Effort. Using Half the Effort. The book has received some great attention, from, uh, including raves from Seth Godin, uh, a book on public speaking that's worth reading and using, he says. And Al Reese, uh, the amazing Al Reese, it's f- refreshing to read a public speaking book that focuses on the message rather than just the techniques. Every speaker should be uh, should read this, read this uh, before ever thinking about getting in front of an audience. And uh, Cam's method is uh, really showing everyone how to organize and think clearly, manage the anxiety, and speak persuasively. Welcome to the program, Cam Barber. Hello, David. It's great to be here. So what is it about your approach, Cam, to public speaking that's resonating in this very unique way? Well, it reverses the traditional approach to public speaking. So the traditional approach is sort of an outside-in approach. They tell you how to act, 
how to stand, how to gesture. They give you rules for eye contact and body language and so on. But it's quite mechanical and impersonal. It doesn't help you think clearly. In fact, in many ways, it, it, it creates anxiety, it creates uncertainty. Mm-hmm. So what's your message reverses that focus. It works from the, out, the inside out. You get clarity about your message and your structure. You learn that your natural style is okay, even with rough edges. And you get comfortable about who who you are. Yeah. So it's an internal process you go through to really uh, own your message, structure it, I guess. And and then it leaves the audience as almost a, well, I won't say an afterthought, but it's not where you start from, I guess, to reiterate a bit. Do I have that right? Well, you start, you know, to to craft a compelling message, you first think about who your audience is. Mm -hmm. Um, But the the, the thing is, what's your key measure of success? This This is what drove me. Uh, I, I was a I was in radio. I was a radio sales manager, and I did a presentation training course over two days. And after the course, I was more nervous and more self-conscious than before. <laughs> and so, what they told us, they said the key measure of success is how you stand, how you gesture. That, that, that this powerful, mysterious force of body language has much more importance than your words. Yeah. And so the idea that um, your message that is transferred into the audience as your key measure of success was lost. But that is that is the, the key focus. Get the message right, everything else flows. Okay, okay, work from the message. Um, you have said that messaging makes great leaders. We talked about this a bit. Of course, you cite Steve Jobs. Uh, talk a little bit about what is it about Steve that you admire and, and, and tend to um, sort of uh, use in the training you do. Well, the first thing about Steve Jobs is that we still remember his messaging. So what's a thousand songs in your pocket? A thousand songs in your pocket is the message that was delivered 13, 14 years ago for the original iPod. Yeah. And so we, he, 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 and in fact, if you read the biography on Steve Jobs, one of the interesting things about that example, he, he, we remember many of his messages because he was so good at, at crafting them and getting them into our brain. Mm-hmm. But the iPod example is interesting because he knew the message before they'd even named the product. Uh-huh. So here's a CEO. I've never seen this before. Here's a CEO who not only crafts the messages himself, Normally, this is delegated to an advertising agency, but Steve did it. He crafted them, he, he uh, tested them with people, and then he delivered them himself with a product launch. Yeah, it's almost as if he understood the how people will use it and why they will use it, and the name was kind of secondary in a sense, certainly important. Many uh, entrepreneurs or product developers, mm-hmm. I imagine they start with, what should we call it, and move from there. So he was quite the other way up. Well, that's right, and I think a lot of people don't even really understand the importance of it. Now, the iPod's an example of one of Apple's products, but do you know what the what the most watched speech of all time is? No. It's Steve Jobs doing the Stanford commencement speech. Wow, yes, I have seen so that. If you Google Steve, yes, so many people have. So if you Google Steve Jobs Stanford, uh, you'll see that speech. And again, what's great about it is that the stay hungry, stay foolish message at the end has also become part of folklore if you look at that speech you'll see that it's got structure and messaging and that's what drives it he's simply standing behind a lectern reading his speech Mm -hmm. but he's building the case he's building the narrative he's building a story we believe we care and we relate to it isn't it don't we 
Uh, so I wanted to spend. To add one uh, thing. Sure, go ahead, please. I'm sorry to step on you. No, so some people say, oh, so you, you, Cam, you say the message is important, so storytelling is not important and body language is not important. Well, no, that's not the case. Uh, you still bring your ideas to life with your stories and your examples, and of course, your body language and your energy should flow and, and uh, help reflect the, the power of your idea. It's just that you don't have to orchestrate it and craft it like a, a, a machine. It just should flow from your comfortable clarity. Ah, comfortable clarity. What a beautiful phrase. I wanted to spend some time, Cam Barber. Uh, by the by the way, we're visiting with Cam Barber, the website V-I-V-I-D. So it's vividmethod.com. Uh, that's the website, Cam Barber, author and uh, expert on public speaking. I wanted to talk about anxiety. That's something that we all get kind of anxious about, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we get anxious about it. In fact, Sorry. I, uh, I just wrote an article for the, the United Kingdom, for the England, and I used uh, Richard Branson as an example. Yeah. Uh, and I used the line very much like that, David. Uh, Richard Branson gets nervous when he speaks, uh, but he doesn't worry about it. So, um, you know, there's nothing to worry about when you realize that there's nothing to worry about. Uh, but look, the, the, key, the key thing here is that all anxiety is the result of uncertainty. This is principle number one in the vivid method. So there are five principles within the book that help you think clearly and control nerves. So when you understand that uncertainty is the cause of anxiety, instead of spinning your, your mind, spinning in a loop of anxiety that doesn't really go anywhere, you start to think, oh, okay, well, what am I uncertain about and what can I do about it? And so you really want to break that down. So we tend to we tend to deal with this in an emotional glob. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to step on you there, but it's like a big emotional blob, isn't it? So if by breaking it down, we can better understand it, sort of distance ourselves from, oh, this is an emotion I'm having. Why is that? And then is that where you're going with this? Absolutely. Look, I, I talk about being in the mind being in a loop. So you, your heart is pounding. Uh, all of the symptoms, by the way, are, are completely understandable. So yeah. you know, we know that adrenaline is released to give you energy. So your hand shakes, you blush, you, your heart is pounding. We all have different symptoms. So, yeah, emotionally, we sort of go, oh, I don't feel comfortable. They're all looking at me. I see these eyeballs. I'm standing in the spotlight. And then your mind just sort of goes, this is uncomfortable. This is uncomfortable. This is uncomfortable. And your heart pounds more and you're in this loop. Whereas we've got to get out of that and direct our attention to something. Okay. This is the key. Attention directing ideas or attention directing tools. And so the first one, of course, is that, hey, it really doesn't matter whether I say um or how my hands gesture. It's all about the message. So I'll focus on that. And we also have a chapter on your natural style is the right style. Just explaining that there are a bunch of myths telling you or sending you in the wrong direction. And that if even if you say um, um or uh, feel a little bit uncomfortable, people will accept you if you're yourself. They'll accept you with your rough edges. Yeah, yeah. The the idea that, yeah, if it feels real, and I deal with that even in radio and podcasting. You know, there's this effort sometimes to make things, you know, produced and polished. And what I learned over time is yeah. it's okay to relax that a little bit. People really want to get inside the studio with you and your guest, and they want to, you know, see the blemishes and, and hear the ums and the, the, you know, I deal with that all the time. In the podcast world, we uh, like to clean up all the editing. Uh, but we got about 30 seconds left. Cam Barber has been our guest. 
uh, a tremendous mind in the world of public speaking. The website, once again, www.vividmethod.com. The book, What's Your Message? Public Speaking with Twice the Impact Using Half the Effort. Cam, thanks for joining us. BizTalkRadio.com Small Biz Small Biz America The Brain He's the founder of Copywriter Today, an expert in email marketing, automation and sales, a marketing and business consultant, and of course our recurring guest here on The Brain segment, Gabe Arnold. Welcome to the program. Thanks, David. Glad to be here. Always good to have you and your brain with us as well. So each week we look at coming up with a, 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 an aspect uh, of business that uh, you're thinking about. This week we're going to talk about what do you do when your content ma- marketing is failing, content marketing is failing. My question to you before we dig in a little bit is uh, how do we define failing? And it's somewhat obvious, but talk to us about what it means. What's the signal, the 911, and then we'll talk about how to solve it. Yeah, absolutely. So to me, um, when I see like a content marketing campaign, you know, failing, um, it's for for a couple of reasons. Like one, you're not getting people to, you know, open or click or engage at all. You're getting like zero interaction um, or you may be getting some like initial interaction and opens, but no actual action on the call to action. So yeah. I'll explain that a little bit more. So in an email yeah. campaign, if you're sending something out to your list, um, no matter what size it is, and you're getting less than 10% open rate, then you know that your your subject lines just aren't really working. But say, for example, you're getting a great open rate, but you're not having anybody click through and take action to take the next step, then that's also a red flag. Um, a similar kind of, you know, thought process applies when, say, you're sharing something on social media. If you if you see that nobody's viewing it or liking it or interacting with it, then you know that you're off base. Um, but then kind of the second level of if there's a failure, maybe people are doing some interaction, but when they click to the page or they take the first step, they're not taking the next step of using the contact form or downloading the resource or doing what you're asking them to do next. Yeah, um, so both, yeah. that's kind of where I start to look and say, hey, you know, we're not getting that, you know, engagement that we're looking for, and so mm-hmm. there's something, something needs to be kind of readjusted. And what's fascinating about how you think about it is it's very much a sequence of uh, micro commitments, and if you're seeing one of them fall off, that's the step that's failing. It's fairly obvious, but I don't know that we all think of it this way and break it down the way you describe that. So you have a couple questions uh, that we should ask ourselves if the above is true. We are sealing failure. So let's uh, take these one at a time. Is my true desire to serve my audience? Please. Yeah. So that's, I think that's like at the core of, of true success is that if you are really going after, you know, your goal is to, Hey, how can I serve my audience at the highest level and give them something really, really valuable that will improve their life, improve their business, improve their relationships, whatever niche you're in. If that's your first and highest goal, then you're going to be fine. But if, and this happens to all of us because, you know, we're all business owners and other things distract us and we can get kind of pulled down into things that are less important. If your focus is, hey, I just want to make a bunch of money off these people or I want to look like the smartest person in the room, you know, in this space or anything like that, when those types of desires are the real focus behind what you're trying to do, 
people can sense that in what you're doing. It's just very apparent, um, and it's not the right thing to do. So that's that's the first thing I asked myself is like, am I actually right. trying to serve my audience with something really, really valuable? Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. It's it's you've got to be focused on the who you're serving. Number two, am I providing outstanding value to that audience? Let's talk about it. Yeah, and so if, if your motive is right, then then you're able to you know take action on doing the right thing. And so if you're providing something that's more valuable than everybody else, um, then then they're going to take action on it and they're going to take the next step and they're going to engage it with you, which is the whole point. So if you objectively look at the offer or what you're giving away or the piece of content that you provided to them, is it more valuable than what other people are doing? Is it truly valuable? So if you if you showed that to a few friends, a few colleagues, and just some random people on the street, would they be like, oh, wow, this is really, really cool, and I would love to you know, take advantage of that or use it or read the content? If that's mm-hmm. the reaction that you're getting, you're fine. But if it's just you know, a crap article uh, or, you know, a resource that really isn't worth that much and it's just garbage, then, then of course nobody's going to engage in it. So, <laughs> so. Well, you're a guy that likes to run um, your business by the numbers. And it's, I think part of it is you got to look at data, whether we're talking about the first instance, uh, uh, is it working or not, is whatever I'm doing working. And then, and then the second is, is, is this of any value to anybody other than myself in my own bubble? And that's part of what you're, uh, yep. And, and this kind of leads, I think, to number three, your third question for today. Am I really solving real-world problems with what I'm offering? I, I'm not sure I completely understand this question, so please. Yeah, so we can talk about, like, the we can. this is a really important question of the three because we can talk about having the right desire, the right attitude. That's a foundation. We can, you know, say, are we providing value and we can, people can see value in it and we can kind of take that litmus test, but if you can look at this piece of content, the resource, what you're giving away, what you're talking about in the campaign, you can say, this will solve this problem in these three steps or by following this system, or this will actually solve a real world problem that your you know, prospect is facing, mm-hmm. then you're in good shape. If you can't boil down your idea to the, that concrete of a statement, then of course people aren't gonna connect with it. Because if I, if I showed you Today, David, I could show you three things that would take you 15 minutes and, and could drastically change your retirement account. Um, you know, then yeah. that's something that you could put into place. And so you've got to really boil it down to concrete, you know, things that you can take advantage of. Beautiful stuff. Uh, Gabe, stay with me. Uh, Gabe is with copywritertoday.net. Uh, you can also call them at 888 uh, brilliant, brilliant uh, email marketing automation and uh, a whole lot that you guys do, uh, website development, content development as well. I have a golden quote, but I wanted to keep you on. We've got about a minute and a half left till we close out. Here's a quote from Mark Zuckerberg. Quote, if you just work on stuff that you like and you're passionate about, you don't need to have a master plan with how things will play out. Hmm. <laughs> Gabe, I had to keep you here for this one because it's 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 sort of a little bit of a, a surprise. We all plan, we do business plans, we we try to map it out, and Zuckerberg's telling us just work on the stuff you like. Yeah, I think he's right, um, and I think that all <laughs> I think yeah. that all great yeah. entrepreneurs will uh you know give you something that's contradictory right. all success and all truth is contradictory um so that's my that's my take on that and that's I your take that, on that yeah. but it, it's important that you are passionate because that will drive you through the parts where you don't have a plan or where you're struggling or where you're having trouble you definitely need to do what you love 
So Thanks, Gabe. Thanks for joining us again. We'll see you next week on The Brain. That is our show for this week. You can always listen to our archives on iTunes or biztalkradio.com. If you like what you hear, giving us, uh, please give us a smashing review on iTunes. We really appreciate it. To be a guest, you can uh, send me an email at guests at smallbizamerica.com. Always love your comments. Next week, we have Morag Barrett, Ron Steele, Jay Bean, and again, the Small Biz Brain with Gabe Arnold. Uh, wishing you success this week in your small business. We are Small Biz America on the Biz Talk Radio Network. Have a good week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Thank you.